Uh, the reading's from 2 Samuel chapter 6, for those of you that want to find it in your Bibles. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Belah in Judah to bring up from there the ark the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guided to the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, lyres, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. Therefore God struck him down and he died there besides the ark of the God. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, this place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me, the ark of the Lord, to be with him in the city of David? Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he... So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fowl. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Mishal, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping at him in her heart, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent of David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the crowd of Israel, both men and went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Yeah, Father, we just pray for Johnny as he brings his word based on the scripture and he brings your presence with him as he speaks. And I pray that you would continue to be with us and teach us and that we can open our hearts to receive what you have to speak through him. I believe that he carries your presence and he carries your word this morning. I pray that we all are open to receive that from him and from you. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Good things, quite heavy. Oh, I need to do my press-ups. Uh, great. If you have the, the uh, scripture we just read open, you'll be relieved to know uh, talking about it this morning. 
And just to recap sort of what we're here for as a church, the reason that we're here. Thanks, love. Um, you know, our, our, our sort of vision statement, the way we cast this is we want to see the church on fire and the city alive. So the church on fire means, means to have a group of people who are going ever deeper in their journey with us. Uh, we're just beginning, right? We're right at the start and we're figuring out you know, whether we even believe this, this about, and do, is there a God? And what, if so, what is he like? And does he strike people down beside carts and all that kind of stuff? We're sort of over here asking some questions and others of us are somewhere a bit further along and we're sort of asking some other questions like, okay, I believe God is real and I'm just trying to figure out how I would follow him and what was that look like in my life and what do I have to give up? And what might I have to take up? And those sorts of questions. And others of us, we've been doing this for years and years and years and years. And we're like, yep, I'm going deeper for the hour to the seventh of prayer every day and whatever else, you know. We're all on a different part of the journey. And, you know, most of us are somewhere on there. And for us, going, seeing the church on fire means all of us, wherever we start from, going deeper. Stepping in at a deeper level. So ever, wherever I begin, I'm, I'm looking to go further. I want to take, take this deeper. That's what it means to see a church on fire. But for us, it's of course, and for the church and for the people of God throughout the scriptures, it's never just been about the church. It's never just been about God's people. It's always, there's always a so that. There's always a so what. And the so that is, the, is, is, is about the city beyond the boundaries of the church. It's about people who, who need, uh, need help, who need the presence of God in their lives. Um, it's about seeing people outside of the church come alive. And so we believe the church is, yes, it's, it's God's people filled with God's people so that the world might be blessed. And last week, uh, we talked, I guess, about, for the next few weeks, we'll be talking about the foundations of, uh, we hope, what the foundations will be in this church. Primary foundation, and as I was preaching, actually, I realized that um, the primary foundation is the presence of God. Um, that, that the building of the church is nothing without this foundation being set. And that foundation is God's presence. And we read from, from may remember, uh, the story of Moses and Israel and how uh, they were being sent up from the place to, to, that they were by Mount Sinai to, to take the promised land and how they'd sinned greatly and they were in danger of losing the presence of God. And we said that uh, Moses is given this deal. The whole of Israel is given this deal. God says deal, d- deal or no deal. He gives them, you can go up and you will have everything you've ever wanted. You'll have success in battle. You'll have provision. You'll have everything you, you've ever dreamed of. In fact, you'll have everything I've ever promised you. The only thing is I'm not going to go. It's about how actually for them it's no deal. That is not a good deal. They don't want that because they recognize in that moment in ways that they hadn't seen before that the presence of God was the whole point. The presence of God wasn't something sort of extra on top of everything else. No, the presence of God with them and for them was everything. It was all about God all along. And we want to say that as in, in fact, not just our foundation, but our very purpose is the presence of God. Success for us looks like carrying God's presence with us. We don't know where God's going to take us. We have some dreams. We have some hopes. Um, and, you know, we'd all have different hopes. We all carry hopes into this place for our own lives and for our church, for this church. But we don't know. We can never be sure of the destination. But, if we, if, but success for us looks like carrying God's presence with us wherever he would take us. So how do we carry God's presence? 
That's the question. How do we become the kind of church that is familiar, carries the presence of God, that instinctively draws near to God and allows God to draw near to us? How do we become that kind of people? Or you might put the question like this. How do we see more of the presence of God active? How do we discern the presence of God more in our city? Well, actually, that's sort of the question that David is asking in the, in the scripture that we had read to us. You see, what's happened is that David has been made king. Now, he's, if, you do, if, you're not, if you're new to the Bible, you won't know this, but there's a, a people in the Old Testament who were God's people. They were, and eventually, Israel, they, they asked for a king, and they had a king who wasn't a very good king. His name was Saul. And then God sort of says, Saul, you're done. I'm going to choose somebody else, and his name's David. And David was known throughout the script, greatest king. And one of their greatest leaders. You sort of put him alongside Moses as one of the two great leaders in the Old Testament. David was a great king. This is right at the beginning of David's story though. And what we find is that David's just been made king. Just been made king. And he goes and wins some military victories. That's sort of in chapter... That's the first thing he does. He wins this city as his home base, if you like. And then he defeats the Philistines, Israel's longtime enemy. And then, then, there's a question for David. And the question is, is what do we do about, what do we do about the Ark of the Lord? What do we do about the Ark of the Lord? And I know what you're thinking, Ark of the Lord, is that a big boat? Is that Noah's gig? Is that, was it, are there still animals on it? No, it's a different Ark. The Ark of the Lord was a box-like structure, and forgive me if I refer to my notes here, a wooden box which had an open top we'll need help with. It was about three to four foot long, and it was two and a quarter feet high and deep or wide. And here's the thing about it. It was covered, covered in gold. It would have shone brightly when the sun was on it. Was, it was full of gold, absolutely covered in gold. It had sort of uh, rings on the sides so that you could carry it with. You'd carry it with these poles. They were covered in gold. Everything about it was covered in gold. And here's the thing. That's all, you know, interior design stuff. Here's the thing. It was where God's presence dwelt. It was the place where God's presence dwelt. In it were the, the stone tablets that Moses, that God inscribed, the Ten Commandments were in it. The second version, the first version Moses smashed, we looked at that last week. That The stone tablets were in there and it was all of God's thrones. So it was where God would put his feet when he was sitting on his throne. It was the place where God's presence dwelt. This was not just a religious artifact. This was a place of God's presence. It was extremely valuable Here's the thing, it had been outside. And David's like, we're going to get that thing back. And we're going to take that, we're going to take the presence, we need to take the presence of God into the city. Into the church. We, that's where it needs to be. That's what David was saying. Congregation participation is encouraged, by the way. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. That's the question, that's the question David was asking. How do we see the presence of God in the city? How do we see the presence of God in the church? Now, David's answer to that is fascinating. Basically, what David does is to set up a massive, moving worship service. And there is an, un an unmistakable connection between the presence of God and worship. There is an unmistakable connection throughout the scriptures and throughout Christian history and throughout my own history and worship. 
Now for me, as I think back on my sort of life story, I can think of a number of different occasions where I've sensed, and you know, God, and we said this last week, hopefully we sense God's presence daily. That's our aim is to minute by minute even be aware of his presence. Uh, and we said that his presence is, is the, the word that's used in, in, in Exodus is his face. Seeing his face, understanding what he, what he thinks of us and just being aware of him. And that's a daily thing. But there are moments where his presence is particular presence in a, in a fresh way. There are moments where that happens. And for me in my story, a lot of those moments for me were actually quite early in, in my life in worship. There's a place, Survivor. And some of you may have heard of that. So it was sort of a, a youth sort of festival. And, and when I was sort of young, maybe sort of 10 or 11, it was in a time where there's a real outpouring of God's presence in this land, in this nation. And sort of all across, I mean, it, was, it started in Toronto, in Canada. But it was quite widely um, experienced. Real outpouring of God's presence. But it was particularly um, evident in worship. And as a kid, I just remember years of age. Being in times of worship, times of sung worship, and just being overcome with the presence of God. That was really uh, crucial in my own development. And actually, we see through Christian history, even thinking fairly recently, sort of the Wesleys would be a good example, of an outpouring of God. The last revival in England was around the time of the Wesleys. Extremely important in this land. In fact, historians say that one of the reasons the French Revolution never spread to the UK Wesleys very significant moment in our history. And you have John Wesley preaching and organizing. And you have Charles Wesley leading people in worship. These two things, word and spirit, always come together when we see a movement of the presence of God. Uh, worship isn't just about singing. It's not just about singing songs at Soul Survivor. It's not just about Charles Wesley hymns. Worship is way bigger than that. The word worship, in fact, comes from a, an old English word, worth skip. And it, it literally means to ascribe worth to something. So I prefer to, to say to ascribe ultimate. And so we understand then, if we start thinking around that, that we, by definition as human beings, are people who worship. The question for humans is never, do we worship? Never the question. The question is always, what do we worship or who? For you, if, you're, if, the, if your ultimate worth is contained uh, in your car, then you worship your car. If your ultimate worth is contained in your career, if that's the thing that you're pointing your energies and your efforts, and your, that's your God, that's what you worship. If your ultimate uh, aim is to secure your comfort or your security, then that is the object of your worship. Or your children's comfort and their security, then that is the object of your worship. Our worship is the thing that we ultimately to protect and secure and to bring worth towards. So worship is, is it's an activity. It is something we do when we bring worth to God. It's what we've done this morning, right? We've sung songs. We're still doing it now. We're listening to the scriptures. and that's, This is worship. But as well as an activity, it's also a state. Like friendship. Right, friendship is something we do, right? We go out for coffee and go see forest games or whatever it is you do in your time. I don't know, go and see gigs. Or I don't know what. Whatever you do, it's an activity. But it always goes beyond the activity. But it's a state, isn't it? We're in friendship. You know, we're friends. Like, it's not just something we do. It's what we are. Worship's the same. 
not just the, it's not just songs that we sing, it's the way that we live. It's a state in which we exist with God. Matt Rebin, who's a, a worship leader, and I thank Duncan sent it to me this week, said, In true worship, our deeds always outrun our words, and our lives always outweigh our, so- our songs. In true worship, our deeds always outrun our words. Our lives always outweigh our songs. True worship, when, when worship is pointed to God, the kind of worship that, that, in, that welcomes God's presence, the kind of worship that is like a red carpet for God to walk down, that you can church into the midst of the city, that kind of worship is bigger than just the, the singing of songs. It's bigger than just the utterance of, of, a, of anybody's tongue. It's all about a life lived before God. A life that by every act and in every way it ascribes worth to God. A life that demands an explanation. A life that is just like by its very nature a massive question mark for people who are around us. A life, a life that's radically generous. Radical hospitality. A life of incredible patience. A life ultimately of overwhelming love and devotion. We, had a com- we were at a wedding yesterday. <laughs> some of you were there. Uh, some of you got back at 3 a.m. this morning to Nottingham. We were at a wedding yesterday, and I was having a conversation in the wedding with um, a friend of ours, Emily. And I was talking with, with Amy. We were talking about our kids and you know, how much we love them and everything else. Yeah, we love them. But I was talking about actually at times like being a good dad with my children, particularly for me, being engaged with my kids. I get back from work and, you know, I do work, not just on a Sunday, by the way. <laughs> this is a full-time job, at least I try and make it a full-time job. And, you know, and I, try and, I try and get home at five every day so I can be with the kids between five and seven. Contrary to Amy's sort of opinion about me, I don't spend all my day on my phone, sort of checking my emails and checking Twitter and all these other things. And so, honestly, when I get back, I'm, I'm pretty tired. Are any of the men here familiar with cave time? Yep, folks, we are. Some of the, some of the men are nodding. Women, you may also do cave time. I've, I've only discussed it. That, is that time when you get back from your day, and all you want to do is, like, withdraw. That's what you want to do. Women are nodding, too. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a multi-sex thing. <laughs> Anyone can do it. And, it's, and, and honestly, what I want to do is withdraw. Perhaps multi-sex is not the word. <laughs> We'll edit that out of the recording <laughs> before it goes on the website. <sighs> Cave time. You just want to withdraw. And, and this is kind of what I'm like. I often get my phone out. And I try not to, but I want to, I want to withdraw. My phone is just this is a distraction, this, this God, <laughs> you might say, small g, that I just I can pour my energies and my efforts into. And, and that's too easy for me to do now. This Emily... You know, the thing is, worship begins, she said to me, worship begins when it's difficult, doesn't it? Like, when, when you, <laughs> that's when it begins. You know, we, it's difficult for kids when you get back from work because you're tired. Oh, isn't that hard for you, Johnny? <laughs> I know she's thinking, I've looked after my kids for five years full time, whatever. But, you know, she said, Johnny, no, but that's when worship begins, isn't it? When it's difficult, that's when worship begins. That's true. Because it's about, it's about what's an explanation? It goes beyond the expectation, and it begins when it's tired. 
Generosity, gen- worship, worship in generosity looks like going beyond what, what we expect to give. Worship with hospitality means welcoming people when we're exhausted. We don't want to do that. That's worship. Like, what does the kind of worship look like that welcomes God's presence? The kind of worship that we want to embody together so we can be the people of God's presence for the blessing of Nottingham. How do we define that? Well, I just want to, in the next sort of five, ten minutes as we finish, just pick up on a few things that we see in five. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 5. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets. Castanets, folks. Awesome. Those are those little things that you have in your hands, aren't they? They seem a bit Spanish to me. I didn't realize they were also in ancient Israel. Castanets. Harps. We've had a, we have a harpist in our church, by the way. Josh here. We've had, Monday, Thursday, if you're here, we have harps. We'll bring the castanets. We have a harp. Lyres. No, not sure about those. Tambourines. Excellent. They can be arranged. Rattles and cymbals. Cymbals on the stage. We see the first thing, the first sort of defining thing of God's, of worship, the kind of worship that welcomes God's presence is it's all about celebration. It's about celebration. We actually see earlier on, it's in verse 1, that David has brought together, to make this happen, all the able young men of Israel. 30,000 young men. In procession, the presence of God in the ark before them, 30,000. Probably a, a crowd at Forest on Saturday, plus some. Young men. And that's not including all the other men the not young men, the women and children who are lining the way. There's probably scores of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands potentially of people celebrating. And there's musical instruments. It is just a, a holy melee. It's, it's, it's People just celebrating God. Before the presence of God, just welcoming the presence of God in their celebration. Church, it's the same for us. We've got to learn to celebrate. This is one thing I want to challenge us in. As we sort of learn a vocabulary of worship to just to learn to celebrate. I want to challenge us to, to bring our best. I don't, know, I don't mean, don't hear me saying fake it till you make it stuff. I just mean that there's something about celebration. Presence of God. Celebration, which is an activity. It's a singing of songs. It's, dare I say, even a gentle swaying. Maybe even a, something which might even be described as Dancing. Do have a little bit of a dance? We did a little bit of a dance last night at the wedding. I gave it 10 minutes of my best stuff, and then I ran out of dance vocabulary. <laughs> which is an activity, but which is also a state, a heart posture of celebration. We've got to cultivate this church. We've got to cultivate a heart posture of celebration. And let me, let me say this. I think our culture wars against this. I think our culture doesn't help us here, and here's why. Because one of the primary values in our culture is authentic. It's a wonderful thing, by the way. We want to be real with each other. But here's the danger in worship, when we, all we want to be is authentic. So sometimes, probably most times, you don't fancy a little dance, a little jig. You might not even feel like celebration. Because do you know what? You might be tired on a Sunday morning. You kick the door. You, you know, you might be like sweating just to get here. You may have had a really hard week. You may be struggling with life. You may be unemployed. You may be desperately trying to see a breakthrough in some area of your life. You may feel alone. You may feel depressed. Lots of reasons. You may be experiencing grief. You know, that may be where you are. 
And actually, if all we are ever is authentic, we'll probably, most of us, will never celebrate. But there's something here which is talking about a discipline of worship. It, that's what worship is. Often it's a discipline. It's something that we do. It's something we do in order to feel. Those of you who have been in a long-term relationship, how it, it goes. Sorry to shatter the illusions of the, the not yet married. Maybe never married, absolutely. You don't, we don't always feel, in any relationship, we don't always feel absolutely awesome. Whether that's a friendship or something about it. But long-term relationships are built around commitment to celebrate. So I want to encourage us to do that. That's what we see here. And yet we see celebration in itself is not enough. This is not just a party going on here. There's something holy, holy going on here. Verse 6 when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, they out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Wow. Now, a, a full explanation of this text. I think the key thing, the key word here is his irreverent act. That word... Um, that word actually, in, in, it's only this word, but it's used in other um, texts of around the same time. That word in, in that language means, um, let me just find it here, sorry, disdain or negligence. So what the, what the text is trying to dis- display is that Uzzah has, di- has displayed an, act, an act, sort of a heart posture towards the ark of it. It's just some other box, right? It's just a box. Okay, everybody knows you don't touch the ark. Only the priest touches it. Only the, only the high priest. Everybody knows that, but us is like, oh, it's falling. Well, I'll just reach out and grab it. It's just another artifact. It's just another object. It, and so what's going on here is that us is actually not valuing the presence of God. He's just treating the presence of God as if it's just anything else, right? Just another thing. And we don't have to, you know, it's basically he's not seeing the Lord as holy, as different as other other. He's not seeing the Lord as other. He's just seeing God's presence as some other thing. You like that? I sometimes wonder whether this reverence that God is calling for in, his, in worship is missing, or it's definitely missing from our culture. And you hear this just on the street, the way that God's name is, you know, uh, just about, well, it is essentially used as a swear word. Activity, if you like, is a heart posture, right? Of just God is just another object. I can use his name as I please. But actually, I think sometimes we're in danger, even within the church, of treating the presence of God just like, just like currency that we spend or, you know, as we please. I guess it's a bit like this sort of Jesus is my boyfriend thing, right? You know, where we're, we're really, we're, uh, familiarity, if you like, can breed contempt. And actually, in this tension that, that, that the hearers of the faith are able to hold, which is both understanding the fear of God how awesome and how other he is. He's not like us. And we'll never be like him in one respect. But also the friendship of God. The friendship and the fear. And great worship. Worship that pleases God's heart. God's heart. We need to recover and understand that when we invite God's presence, we're not just inviting our gran to come round. You know, just somebody who we, we love and we sort of look up to a bit. No, we're inviting the holy God who created the universe, who holds the universe in his hands, who is sovereign over every one of us. 
who if he willed to, for, for all of this, everything he's made to cease to exist in the moment of his willing, who is before all time, who is present in all places at all times, whose will will one day fully be done, whose kingdom will come, and who one day every person, every, every person alive or dead will and call him worthy. Every heart, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where we're heading. We will all experience his holiness. We need to learn reverence. We need to understand that worship is costly. I'm going to shoot just as we sort of close. But worship is costly. These guys, you see this? I'll just turn my page. In verse 13, we see when those were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Yes. Every six steps they sacrificed a bull and a calf. It had gone wrong the first time. Uzzah had reached out and David was freaked out by it. And this second go, this second attempt, he realizes that he needs to take this seriously on a wholly different level. Every six ship, unprecedented and costly. This is costly worship. Worship is costly to us. It will cost us our time. Not just time on a Sunday, but every day. But if every day becomes worship to assignment for us any time, it will cost us our time, it will cost us our talent, our gifts. You know, our gifts are no longer our own. They were never ours before anyway. They were gifts given to us to serve God. Our gifts are no longer our own, and we point those towards worship of God wherever he would call us. Our time, our talent. Our you know, we think in the West that like our money is, we think, we think we have this concept with our money, Right? And in the church, we don't have that concept, do we? It's all God's. It's all God's. Well, we shouldn't. It's all God's. It all belongs to God. Called to do is to, is to offer it freely back to him in worship. It's costly. Finally, worship is surrendered. Verse 19. Rather, verse 4. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Wearing a linen ephod. Folks, please don't take this literally. No linen ephods allowed next week at church. What we see here, though, is a posture in David of surrender. A posture of surrender. Here David is. David comes into God's presence, arrives into Jerusalem with the ark, into, God, into the God's city with God's presence. And David understands this, essentially this. There's only... There's only space for one king in the room. So David takes off his kingly robes and reveals what's underneath. And what's underneath is simply this, a linen ephod. Effectively his underpants. Dancers would have been dancing, wearing. This is, he's scantily clad. David, in God's presence, wearing just his underwear. It's an extraordinary act of humility. It's an extraordinary act of intimacy. Worship is a journey toward intimacy. It begins in celebration. It, it understands holiness, the holiness of God. It's reverent. It's the nation for worship is intimacy. This is where worship, this is worship's true end, where we fully understand the friendship of God. Face to face with God, friendship and fear together. And David here is dancing before God. The audience of one. That's what worship is. It's surrender to the audience of one. 
Here's the question as we close. Are we surrendered? Are we surrendered? Do we understand that worship is something we're mourning? It's not just the singing of songs. We might like to sideline it in that way. It, it costs and, and is supposed to absorb the entirety of our existence. I don't mean that we need to walk, out, walk around the place with earphones in singing Bethel songs. All day, every day, if that's your thing, then great. In that it's a lifestyle. Our worship is a lifestyle. If we want to be the kind of church that carries God's presence in this city and into this city, we need to, above all, understand the value of surrendered worship. Are we surrendered? Close with a story about a guy called D.L. Moody. Some of you have heard of him. But D.L. Moody was one of the great evangelists uh, in America. He oversaw the number of people involved, but he oversaw was one of the people who was an evangelist within a, a, a great revival. He was primarily in Chicago to start with, and he was a really powerful preacher and a really like, a great organizer. He was a brilliant administrator and organizer and pastor. He would just work, 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 and he got loads of... At one point, he was already a successful preacher, but after he preached one service, two old women came to him and said... Um, Pastor Moody, or whatever they called him, his name was Dwight Moody. We're praying for God's presence to be released in your life. And he was like, hang on, come on. I've just preached an absolute, I don't know if you, I don't know if you heard it. It was, it was fantastic. I'm paraphrasing, folks. It was amazing. Uh, I, I don't, you know, that's great. Thanks for that. But, you know, I'll, great, I'll just crack on. But that, that conversation birthed in him a passion, a deep desire for the presence of God to work in his life in a new way. It was the beginning and that journey took him deeper and deeper into prayer for God's presence in his life. Desperate for God's presence to be poured out in his life. But there was one thing stopping him. He'd been told, he felt God, he'd sensed God say to him, I want you to go and be an itinerant evangelist. And that was the one thing where he would not surrender his will. He would not allow God to, to, have, to go, have God's way go and preach there. There was a great fire in Chicago. Um, very famous fire. And it decimated most of the city. Moody just escaped with his life and the life of his kids. Um, and he ended up in New York. And in New York, there was one walking down the streets. And this is what we read. Had God then burned him out that he should go all over the country, perhaps the world? Moody said no. In other words, he wouldn't surrender his will to God's plan. The chains that bound him to Chicago had snapped. All but one. He's now in New York. Yet he craved power. He began to pace New York streets at night, wrestling, panting for a Pentecost. In broad daylight, he walked down one of the busiest streets, Broadway or Fifth Avenue. He scarcely remembered which, while crowds thrust by and the clip, the clock was in his ears. And the newsboys shouted, the last chain snapped. Quietly, immediately an overpowering sense of the presence of God flooded his soul. And now I quote, God Almighty seemed to come very near. I felt I must be alone. He hurried to the house of a friend nearby, sent up his card and brushed aside the invitation to come here and have some food. I want to be alone. Let me have a room where I can lock myself in. His host thought best to humor him. Mudalim seemed ablaze with God. He dropped to the floor and lay bathing his soul in the divine. Of this communion, this mount of transfiguration, he said, I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that had to ask him to stay his hand. Presence of God released. The final chain to snap was Moody's will. Why don't we stand? We're going to surrender together.
our minds. And for each of us, this looks different. And, and some of us uh, come to surrender. For others of us, this is a journey. But I want to call us this morning. I want to call us to this surrender. If maybe Joanne and guys could be ready to play. We're just going to invite the presence of God. We're going to invite the presence of the Lord. We're going to wait on him together and ask him to reveal himself. Father, we welcome your presence. I just encourage you to maybe open your hands, open your heart, just as a sign of, of, of inner openness. If you'd rather not, that's fine. But Lord, we say, Holy Spirit, come. You are the one to whom we surrender. Spirit of God, just move upon us. Just begin to move upon us, we pray. Holy Spirit, come. Jesus.